Let's open to Revelation chapter 2. The last two weeks we've been looking at the churches of Revelation, Ephesus. We looked at that uh, two weeks ago, Smyrna last week. This morning we're going to look at Pergamum. And then there's Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And these seven churches all had really good things um, that, that were happening in them that were good. And they were also things in these churches that the Lord wanted to correct. And as we look at these churches, uh, there's, there's a couple of different ways we can look at this. Um, certainly, we're going to be looking at the, the local churches and how it applies to us today. Uh, some have used these seven churches to kind of outline the, the history of the church, which it seems to do that very interestingly. Uh, but we will just look at the local connotation and how it applies to us. And so this morning we're going to be looking at the church of Pergamos. And that's verses 12 through 17 in Revelation chapter 2. So let's look at uh, just a few things about this, uh, this, this church, some facts about Pergamos. Uh, Pergamos was a wealthy city just like Ephesus and just like Smyrna the, from last week. It was a capital city. Uh, in the pre-Roman days, before it was taken over by the Romans in 133 B.C., it was the northernmost church in West Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And in 29 B.C., Pergamum became one of the first, the, the first city to actually build a temple for the Roman emperor or Caesar. And it was the, the most glorious of the temples, you know, if I can use that word. And it was also the home of the temples of Athena, Asclepius, Dionysus, and Zeus. And this city, Pergamos, was famous for its 200,000 volume library that it had. And it was known for its manufacturing of parchment called Pergamum, which was a new reading material, really, that was made of animal skins. And so, just a little bit of background on, on Pergamum. But let's go ahead and read verses 12 through 17. It says, And to the angel in Pergamus write, These things, says he who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And he ends the letter to the church at Pergamos. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. So we, we read this letter and we see some commendations, and we also see some uh, shortcomings in this church. And in every fellowship, there are things like that. Uh, in every fellowship, there are strong points and there are things that, um, that need some help. And, and certainly in our fellowship, 
there are things that the Lord is doing really well, and, and, and we have a, a certain number of things that, that I believe we're doing really well, but I, I believe also there are things that we could be doing better. There's attitudes in our own heart, the way we uh, respond to each other. All these things, they, they, they mean something, and, and God knows ultimately what those things are. He's the perfect judge, not me, not anybody else, but He, he knows what we need. And, and as we go along in our fellowship, we, we discern what those things are, and the Lord speaks to us. And He speaks to us through His Word, and a lot of times I'm not even aware of the things that He's doing as I'm sharing, because a lot of times I just feel like He, he you know, uh, it kind of takes on a life of its own as we get going. I have my plans, but God directs my steps. Right, And hopefully that's true always because we don't need to hear from me. We need to hear from the Lord. We need to hear uh, of the Lord. So let's go back and look at verse 12 here. Again, a letter that Jesus wrote to this church. And so it's, it's free from any kind of bias, if you think of that. And to me, in a world where everyone is on each other's case about everything, um, it's, it's interesting that the Lord is the perfect judge. So as we read these letters, we understand that God knows the hearts. He knows our hearts. He knows the hearts of His people. So we can take it as truth. And so let's get right into it. So it says in verse 12, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things, says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. And if you remember, as we were looking at the other two letters prior to this, the angel is really the, the messenger or even the pastor of that local church. So Jesus is speaking to the man who is the pastor of this church in Pergamos. And Pergamum, uh, the, the name itself means height or elevation. And perhaps it got that name because of the mountains that are in the, the, the town or around the city. They are high in elevation. And in fact, this is where they put all of those temples that we're going to be looking at in a few minutes um, and so he goes on and he says, I am these things, says he, who has the sharp two-edged sword. And we know that Jesus in chapter 1, really in verses uh, 12 through 17, really described, uh, uh, his description is there in his glorified state. And one of them was of a... Uh, uh, out of his mouth comes forth a two-edged sword. And obviously it's not a, a real sword that's coming out of his mouth, but it is the Word of God which is, which is like a sword. It, it is powerful. And in fact, uh, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it says, For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow. And notice, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And that's one of the jobs, really, if you think of, of the Word of God as we read it, it. It really does, it discerns us. And as we read it, remember, this is God's Word. It's not just a novel that you can read once and throw away or put in a garage sale and sell for 10 cents. This is His Word. It's a living Word. I can read the same passage today and read it tomorrow and even though the context is the same, God can be using, uh, by His Spirit, things in my life to make me aware of certain things and, and, and cause me to consider things that, that are, are kind of maybe not explicitly in the text before us. He has a way of doing that as we read His Word. And so, so the sword, uh, in, in the time, in the Romans, the sword was a symbol of capital punishment. 
no one would go against Rome, for if they did, Rome wielded its authority over the people and over the Roman Empire, as you know, and if, if necessary, they would use the sword to do that. But we know that Jesus ultimately has control and authority over all things. In Colossians 1, 16 and 17, it says that all things were created by Him and for Him were they created. And so all things, and even uh, Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof and all they that dwell therein. It all belongs to Him. But a double-edged sword also has the ability to cut both ways, doesn't it? It has the ability to curse and to bless. You know, if you think of it, uh, a sword can break the chains off of somebody's life, maybe an addiction, maybe some kind of problem that they're having, some issue in their life. Maybe it's uh, unforgiveness uh, from the past of something that your father or stepmother did to you. Um, it could be something that a friend did to you, a best friend. It could have been a church, perhaps, that uh, the, the members of the church really hurt you some way. Somebody in the church hurt you. And the Lord has a way of taking that sword and breaking those chains and setting you free. And He also has the ability to use that other side of that sword to bring correction. And certainly He doesn't do that for His people, but for those who have rejected Christ, uh, ultimately they will face that sword of judgment. And it's not necessarily a physical sword, but it is a, a point of contention. It, it is something, uh, it, it is a judgment that God will wield Himself to those who have rejected Him ultimately at the end. And we know that that's true. But I want you to, to know something, too, about the, the Bible says that the Word of God is a double-edged sword. And if you remember, in Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 4, in the first 11 verses, it reads for us that it was a time when Jesus was tempted of Satan after John the Baptist had baptized him. Jesus obviously didn't need to be baptized, but he did that as a means to identify with man and to show us the example. But he himself didn't need to be baptized. But remember that he did, and immediately following it says, the Spirit of God drove him into the wilderness, into the Judean foothills, right there on the uh, east side of the Mount of Olives. We were just there a few weeks ago, and we drove through the Judean foothills, and that is the area. And it's a really interesting, very interesting area. And I am sure that it has always been as stark as it is now. And this is the place where Jesus was tempted of Satan. And you remember what happened when, the, when you know, Jesus, having been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, it says that the devil came and tempted him and said, Well, if you, since you are the Son of God, then cause this stone to become bread. And Jesus said to him, and he quoted from Deuteronomy, in fact, all of Jesus's uh, retorts against Satan were from Deuteronomy, believe it or not, uh, the law uh, in Deuteronomy. And, and he, he retorted back and said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of uh, the Lord's mouth. And, and finally, uh, there was a second temptation, and then the third temptation where uh, the, Satan brought him up to the pinnacle of the temple, which is a southwest corner of the temple and he says throw yourself down because if you're the son of God the angels will take charge over you and lift you up lest you dash your foot lest you dash your foot against a stone and, and it was kind of interesting because the devil is now using the Psalms as as a means to communicate to the Word of God Jesus Christ and so Jesus says you know get thee behind me Satan you should only trust in the Lord and and, and, I, and I forget the passage uh, verbatim but you know what I'm talking about so let me ask a question. Who do you use 
You know, as we talk about this double-edged sword and the, the Word of God being a, a two-edged sword, what do you use to combat the enemy? Do you use your own ingenuity? Do you use your own knowledge? Do you use your knowledge of history or science? You better use the Word of God because that's what Jesus did. Uh, the Bible says that we don't fight against flesh and blood, but we fight against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. And it's, a, it's, a, it's not a physical battle, it's a spiritual battle. And how do you overcome something that's spiritual that you can't see? Well, you have to fight it in a spiritual way. You know, it'd be so much easier if the things that were invisible somehow manifested themselves. We'd still be in a, in a, in a sore spot, uh, but, but we can't see. And only God can see. And so when we pray, we pray against those things that we know are happening. Because the things that we see going around us and the things that are going on in the world, I believe are all, they are all the result of things that are going on spiritually. Does that make any sense? I hope it does. Because there's always a spiritual battle going on over truth. We see it being going on in our country right now, the, the battle for truth. And one of the first, one of the first casualties in any war is truth. And so we know that we are in a battle for truth. And the Bible is the truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father except through me. So how important is the truth? It's everything. It's everything. So let's go on in verse 13 here. And Jesus said to this church, He says, I know your works. In other words, I know your toil and the things that you have labored. I know your works and where you dwell and where Satan's throne is. And so one of the things about this church and this area that the church was living in is uh, in Pergamum, there were, there were many mountains uh, around uh, the city. And Satan's seat, where, where it says right here, Jesus says, and I know where Satan's throne is. Above the city, on a hill, there was a throne-like altar to Zeus. And this throne-like altar was also called Zeus the Savior. Uh, they would actually have a, a, a plaque on this, and they would call it Zeus the Savior. So you can imagine any Christian living at that time would, would be offended and uh, not excited about these pagan altars. Because Zeus, if you recall, is the Romans, Romans god, and he was like the, the father of it all, right? And so, But this was the most famous pagan altar in the world, and Jesus was very much aware of that. But we know at this place, though, at this place in Pergamum, on the high hills and the mountains around there, they also worshipped the god of Asclepius, uh, which who was, was the god of healing and medicine. And his symbol was a serpent entwined around a pole. And you'll see some of these uh, pictures, symbols in our, in our culture where Asclepius is used, the serpent uh, surrounding the pole. Um, and so we can see that. And Asclepius, again, was uh, in, in his temple there in Pergamum. The uh, worshipers would actually lay on the ground on this temple while non-poisonous snakes would crawl all over them. And that is how they worshipped. And, and they claimed that they would be healed from sickness and disease by going through this. And it was really kind of a twisted, perverse uh, religion, as we know. One author said this about Pergamum. So there was Satan's throne was just a uh, a name for this place because of their idolatry, because of all the different temples that were erected to these false gods. And one author said in Pergamus, it was no problem to serve other gods just as long as one served Caesar. 
One could say Zeus is Lord as long as he also said that Caesar is Lord. No problem. Or one could say Apollos is Lord and Caesar is Lord. And so as long as Caesar was glorified and deified, it was okay to worship those other gods as well. And what a horrible thing this was. And that's why the, the Christians of that time would call that Satan's seat or Satan's throne. And, and Jesus, of course, knew this very much. He knew the, the cause of it. He knew the root of it. He knew what was behind the whole thing. So in verse 13, again, he says, and so he says, I know where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast. Notice his encouragement to them. He says, you're holding fast to my name and you didn't deny my faith. Whose faith is it? Is it my faith? You know, I often talk about my faith. Where did my faith come from? It came from the Lord. Your faith came from the Lord. It's His faith, and He gives it to us, doesn't He? So, He says, And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, who was a faithful martyr who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. You know, this word Antipas, some believe that Antipas may have been the pastor of this church, and it's very possible. We know that he was martyred. And, uh, and as the pastor of that church, he certainly wouldn't want to cave in and certainly wouldn't be willing to cave in to all of the negative, uh, horrible things that were going on there in the temples. It was pagan idolatry. And of course, uh, the, the Word of God has a lot to say with that. That's one of the reasons why the children of Israel got into so much trouble early in the, in the Old Testament and throughout their, um, their uh, tenure in the desert and even beyond as they were in the, in the land of Israel. Tertullian, who was one of the early church fathers, he had this to say. He says, The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And Antipas was not willing to cave in to the demands of Rome. And so, as a result of that, it cost him his life. And I'm sure that if Tertullian could do it again, he would do the same thing. Because right now, he's in the presence of the Lord. And um, what could be greater than that? You know, the... Man has the ability to put this body to death, but then what happens afterward? Man, man can't, uh, all man can do is kill the body. And that's why you see people like um, Martin Luther and you see people uh, like um, uh, Polycarp, who in their lives they were burned at the stake. And they were willing to go through it because they know that it would just be a short time of pain, but then an eternity and see, we often forget about eternity. We only think about the here and now. And so it's always important for us to think of that. It's been said that a wise Christian knows which battles are worth fighting, and a faithful Christian will do so. You know, we have to know what our battles are. Where are we willing to compromise? Or, or maybe compromise is not the best word, but in our life, what areas are we willing to give a little bit of room to? And what areas in our life are we absolutely unwilling to give into and, and that's and that's really important you know what's really important to you what's really important to you what are you willing to fight for are you willing to fight for the truth are you willing to stand up to the gods of today the gods of abortion and the gods of homosexuality and immorality the gods of sexual perversion and lust and greed and pride are you willing to stand up for truth and righteousness and certainly we're not talking about guns and ammo because, again, Jesus said uh, in, uh, through the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, it says, For the weapons of our warfare, they're not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, 
casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, and being, put, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. You know, are you ready? Are you ready? Are you prepared? Because if you're not, you can get ready. And how do you get ready? You, you get into the Word of God. You give your heart to Christ. You, you worship the Lord. And you grow in Him. And that's how you get ready. There's really no easy way around it. Are you willing? Are you willing to fight for the truth? And again, in Zechariah 4, verse 6, one of my favorite verses, says, Not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. We cannot accomplish anything uh, as a church in physical means alone. Um, most of what we do is spiritual. The, the words that we speak are spiritual. It's a spiritual book. But it does have its witness in the physical because we see the results of a life that's given over to Christ. We see peace. We see love. We see joy. We see peace, uh, compassion. We see all of these things. And I love what Jeremiah said, you know, because this church was being persecuted just like the other churches. And you and I, in this country, we haven't faced persecution in, in a great way yet. But I love what Jeremiah said, or what the Lord said to Jeremiah, actually. He said to him, and this is right before the Babylonians came in to bring captive the, the Judah and Benjamin and Jerusalem. He said this in Jeremiah 12, verse 5. God's speaking to Jeremiah. He says, If you have run with the footmen, and they have wearied you, then how can you contend with horses? Because Nebuchadnezzar and his armies had horses, they had chariots, they had a lot of armament. And God is saying to Jeremiah, If you have run with the footmen and they have wearied you, then how can you contend with horses? And if in a land of peace in which you trusted they wearied you, then how will you do in the floodplain of Jordan? The idea is that when things are going really well, you know, we ought to be sharing and when it's really easy to do so. But you know, what's going to happen when things start heating up and things get more difficult and maybe persecution starts to kick in? What are we going to do then? And the only way that we're going to know is if we start doing those things now. If we really start walking uh, with the Lord now and to a deeper extent even and, and loving on Him and, and getting out there and sharing the truth, telling people about Jesus. People right now in this country and in the world right now, they are scared. They really are scared. And many Christians who are scared too. And, and some of them whose, whose foundation isn't really strong because they're not reading, they're not in fellowship, they're, they're, they're scared. They're scared. And it's, it's, it's good for us to come along and encourage them because they need to be encouraged. They need to be encouraged. And what greater way to do that than getting into the Word of God? Because that's the only thing that I know that brings any peace to my heart is to be in the Word of God. Verse 13, again, at the end there, notice he says, You did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was a faithful martyr who was killed among you. So we know that this man was local at that time. He was killed among them. And notice what Jesus says, where Satan dwells, where Satan dwells. One thing that we have to understand about Satan and demons and his fallen angels is they are not omniscient. When we think of omniscience, we think of God. God is he's omniscient and he's omnipresent. Omnipresence is something, actually that's the word I should have used was omnipresent because God can be in all places at once, but it's not true for Satan or for his demons. Satan can only be in one place at one time. Even though he's a spirit, he can only be in one place at one time. 
unlike the Holy Spirit who can be in all places at once. And that's something that we have to understand about these beings that we're talking about, the difference between God and Satan. Satan is a created being. Uh, we read that in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. But notice in verse 14, let's read the uh, verse 14 and 15. But notice, here comes the rebuke. He says, But I have a few things against you, because you have there at the church those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. And so there's two of these different doctrines that the Lord hates. And we ought to hate as well because it's, it's very prevalent. These things that we're reading now are very prevalent in the church in the world right now. And we're going to look at those things in a few moments. But the danger with this church was what was happening from within, not so much what was going on from without coming in on the church. You know, it's been said that if Satan cannot beat the church, he's more than happy to join it and infiltrate it from within. And we see that all over the world. We see it in our newspapers every single day. And that's why we need to pray for church leaders and pastors. Keep them in prayer because they, are the, they, they just have a bigger bullseye on them. Christian, you have a bullseye on you as well because you name the name of Christ and you are one of His, if you are one of His. But make sure you're one of His because if you do, does that mean that everything's going to be roses? No, it's not. In fact, in some instances, things are going to get more difficult for you because now you're going to be really aware of a battle that you never were aware of before. Because most people, before they come to Christ, they're already slain in the battle. They're already uh, Satan's captives, and so there's no battle because there's no resistance. But as soon as resistance shows up on the scene against the devil, you better believe that there is going to be a battle, and you're going to feel it, and you're going to see it uh, being meted out in very natural means. And, and, and we're seeing it all around us. Can you see it? Is it just me? Uh, I, know, I know it's not just me. I know all of you are watching the news. You're, you're seeing things. Believe me, there is a battle going on. And which side of it are you on? Are you on God's side? Or are you on the devil's side? And some may say, well, I just do my own thing. Well, if you're doing your own thing and it's not with Christ, you're on the devil's side, you understand? That's why the, these idols that we were talking about, uh, in, the, these temples, it didn't matter to Caesar because Caesar himself was controlled by a demon. And so it didn't matter to him. And Satan doesn't care either. You can worship many gods because he wants to keep you away from the one true thing, the one true God who can offer salvation. See, that's the root of the devil's hatred toward God. He doesn't care how many people claim to be a God. Sure, you can worship him and you can worship him because in doing so, you're worshiping the spirit behind those things, which is the spirit of Antichrist, the very spirit of Satan. And he doesn't care. He just wants to keep you away from the one. And why is that? Because God loves you. And if God has put his affection on one thing, you know, for God so loved the world, that means the people in the world. That is the object of his affection. And that's the one thing that Satan knows that is the object of God's affection. So what can he do? He can't, uh, all he can do is try to um, deceive those and take them away from God. Because that life is important to God. Your life is important to God. He created you with a purpose. Like you said to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, before you were even in the womb, I knew you and I ordained you to be a prophet to the nations. Before you were even conceived, I had a plan for your life. God has a plan for our lives as well. Have you discovered what it is? I pray that you do. Because there's no greater joy. 
and I'm, I'm discovering what the Lord is, um, what He's created me to do. And I'll be honest with you, I'm happier now than I've ever been. I'm more blessed now than I've ever been. I had my own dreams of being a, a believe it or not, a, a classical guitarist and, and being a musician. That was my dream. And I'm so glad that the Lord got a hold of me because what I get, what I get to do now is more important, more exciting, more, I'm more fulfilled than anything. And it's even not about my fulfillment. It's just the benefit of it, right? When a heart that loves Christ, and, and you know the saint, you know what I'm talking about. But Satan will infiltrate the church with individuals who have an outward show of piety, but deep down they are perverts and led by uh, perversion, and they seduce others to do so. And that's what these, the doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, that's really what it's all about. And see, these doctrines, they were hurting the church. Uh, they were hurting the church. And just a little bit of this, or even a whole lot of this stuff in the church, is very harmful. Notice what it says to me in 1 Corinthians as Paul was addressing the Corinthian church in the first century. He says, and, and, and he's responding to an issue that was going on in the church at the time. There was a, there was a young man in the church who was having an, uh, an affair with his father's wife. And so, and the church, instead of being sad about this and dealing with the issue rather they kind of boasted in their liberty of it and Paul wrote to them in his first letter and he says in 1 Corinthians 5 verses 6 and 7 he says your glorying is not good do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump we know that leaven is yeast right that's what women would make they put leaven in, in dough that's what that's how we make rolls at home my wife puts in yeast she puts a saran wrap over it and she sticks it next to a warm oven and the, the, the yeast begins to ferment and it begins to grow. And sin is like that. It starts off very small, but then it, it, whatever organism it is in, even in the organism of the church itself, it starts to spread. It doesn't just stay by itself. And he goes on and he says, Therefore, verse 7, Purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. And so he kind of rebukes them about their glorying in this. And he says, but a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And certainly in this church, that is exactly what was happening. And, but but you've got to understand that this doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of Nicolaitans, this is really, really important because we see the effects of it in our life today and in the church, uh, the visible church in the world. We see this. But doctrine, let's talk about that because doctrine is a belief or a set of beliefs held or taught by a church or some kind of group, a political party, for instance. And uh, doctrine in, in the church is important because what a person holds to or believes is going to determine how that person acts and interprets things around them. So what I believe actually shows itself in my life. And it shows itself on how I react to external stimulus, doesn't it? Because when I read something in the newspaper, I can either freak out, but if I know my Bible, I can interpret that in light of the Word of God. And that's what we ought to do. And so what a person holds to or believes, it is going to determine how that person acts or interprets things around them. In fact, Kenneth Copeland, who is, uh, in my opinion, a false teacher, he, he actually... Uh, said this on the air. He says, I don't preach doctrine, which the Bible's filled with doctrine, right? It's, about, it's teaching, teaching us about certain things, uh, about important things. 
He says, I don't preach doctrine. I don't preach doctrine. I preach faith. And it's kind of an unfortunate thing because we need to know doctrine. We need to know what the Bible says and what it teaches us about Jesus, about us, about God, about everything else in the Bible, about prophecy. We need to know these things. Just knowing faith doesn't get us anywhere unless we have a context for that faith. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, Peter, the Apostle Peter, spoke about the deceptions of false teachers at the time in the first century, and also it's speaking to us today. Notice what he says. For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. And while they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also is he brought into bondage. Does that make sense? By who a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. And that's exactly what happened with this early church. And we'll look at more specifically what this doctrine of Balaam is and the doctrine of Nicolaitans in just a few moments. But let's just consider for a moment uh, what we are dealing with even in the, in the church today or, or even in the last 50 years. Um, you know, there were people who believed in the, in the doctrine of Jim Jones. You remember Jim Jones, he was the leader of the People's Temple cult in Jonestown, Guyana in 1978. You remember what he did based on his teaching, based on what he was teaching, his doctrine, what happened? All those people died from poison Kool-Aid that they drank together. And they did that based on what they believed because they were believing a man rather than believing the Word of God. This deceiver, this Jim Jones, was the one who led them into this. And they became uh, they were overcome by him, weren't they? As it says in Second Peter, by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. They were brought into bondage by this man's ideas, by his doctrine. And what about in 1993? Remember, 79 people who believed in the doctrine of David Koresh. Remember him from the Branch Davidians. All those people, 79 of them died in a fiery inferno, remember, on their compound in Plano, Texas. They believed in David. They believed in his understanding of the scriptures and, and, and how he twisted them. And, and they were so aberrant. They, they were comical. And yet they believed it. And unfortunately, these people, unfortunately, they died as a result of what they believed in. So doctrine is important. Wouldn't you agree? Or what about in March 26? This is the last one. In 1997, there was a, a cult called the Heaven's Gate. And 39 people committed suicide as they waited for the comet hale Bop to come through so that they might be taken to mothership. It, it, I mean, it's almost laughable to think of it, but this is what people believe. If they don't believe in Jesus Christ, they will believe in anything. And the devil is a master at deception. And he will use a man who has a lot of charisma. He'll use a man who has some semblance of religion. He'll, he'll, he'll use a man who has some piety and some, you know, whatever, and he'll use his personality and interject his own deception. And then people, and they mix in some truth and a little bit of deception, mix in some truth, and pretty soon you got this recipe for a cult, and the people are hooked in it now. And they'll do anything because they believe it. So doctrine is really, really important.
when we think about the doctrine of the rapture? Why is that so important to us? Because if I don't believe in the imminency of the rapture, meaning that it could happen at any time, if I don't believe that, then what will happen to me as a person is I will get lazy and I'll no longer share the gospel with people. I'll get lazy and I'll pretend like I've got plenty of time. I won't do anything. I'll just kind of rest on my laurels and, and go up in the mountains somewhere and enjoy a, a, you know, peace and quiet away from the world, totally being ineffective for the kingdom of God. But if, is that, if, if, that's, if that's what I believe, then that will affect what, what I do. But if I do believe in the imminency of the rapture of the church, what does that do? It, it, it encourages me to share the truth. It encourages me to get the gospel message out, which we all are to do. Because remember, we are not guaranteed tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. Uh, recently, just a few days ago, a friend of mine from college, his name was Dmitry Diachenko, and he was in the guitar department at Stetson University. And me and a, a brother uh, in the Lord, his name was Joe Shields, and I, we used to hang out together uh, quite often. And uh, Dmitry... Uh, was one of these guys who who just very talented. He went on to Hollywood and became a um, uh, an actor. Uh, uh, he was a rising star, really. He was in movies with uh, Demi Moore and with uh, Harrison Ford and uh, Indiana Jones movies. He was in a lot of different things and a very talented musician. And, and we just found out that he just passed away. He was uh, he had a heart attack or something like that. Very sudden kind of thing. And, uh, and I remember talking to Dimitri uh, right after I had given my heart to Christ in my senior year of college at Stetson University. I remember talking to him. And at the time, he kind of scoffed at it. But I'm hoping that maybe uh, sometime uh, that he gave his heart to Christ. Because what an awful loss of a life of a very talented, very talented man and how he could have been such a great tool in the hand of the Lord. And so... I'll certainly miss him, but uh, it, it was just such a horrible thing to hear. But what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say about doctrine? Let me just give you a couple of verses here. In Titus chapter 1, verse 9, doctrine is important. So when we talk about this doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of Nicolaitans, which we're, we're going to be getting into here some week now. <laughs> In Titus chapter 1, verse 9, what does Titus say? Or what does Paul say to Titus? I'm sorry. He says, Hold fast the faithful word as, as has been taught, that you may be able by sound doctrine to exhort and convict those who contradict. And so, by sound doctrine. And Titus, again, in the next chapter after that, verses 1 through 3, what does uh, Paul say to Titus? He says, But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. Sound doctrine, that the older men may be sober, they may be reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, and in patience. The older women likewise, that they may be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine. Notice, teachers of good things. Teachers of good things. And what would Paul tell his young protege, Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6? It says this, Paul said to Timothy, If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, Christ nourished in the words of faith and of, good, and of the good doctrine which you have faithfully followed. That's pretty significant. And in Paul's second letter, finally, he spoke this. 
to Timothy. He says, Timothy, the time will come, verse 3, when they, when the world, when the church, they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Boy, the church loves to have a pastor just tell stories and fables all the time instead of getting them into the Word of God, and, and that's not a good thing. I mean, there's nothing wrong with a with a with a joke every now and then to kind of lighten things up. But you know, some uh, that's all they do is speak stories, and they don't really get. They they speak of current events. They speak about politics the whole time, and they don't get into the Word of God. This is what changes me. This is what changes you is doctrine, the Word of God. That's what it does. But notice, let's go back to verse 14. It says the doctrine of Balaam. What is this doctrine of Balaam? Let me just read it again. He says, but I have. A few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak, who was the the king of Moab at the uh, in, in the Old Testament. Balaam taught Balak, this king of Moab, to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols, to commit sexual immorality. This idea of a stumbling block is is a snare, and we all know what that is. Uh, a snare is like a box you put up with a little twig or a, or, or a, a, a a branch of some kind, and you have a rope tied around it. And you put a piece of meat in there, and then the animal goes inside, whether it's a bird or some other animal, and the the rope is pulled, the box goes down, and the person is caught. They're captured, and that's literally what uh, uh, is being spoken here by the Lord. He says Balaam was the one who taught Balak the king of Moab, to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel. We're going to read that passage in just a minute because we'll see the context of it. And so the only thing that kept Balaam from indulging in his covetous ways was God intervening in throughout his life. If you, uh, if you look at Numbers 22 through 24, you'll see uh, Balaam, who was just a man really governed more by money than he was the Lord himself. He was a man of gold rather than a man of God. And God overruled him on a number of occasions, but we'll see his end in a few moments. But it is important uh, to take heed to these things, these false teachers that were in the first century. And there are false teachers among us even today. In Second Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, Peter said this, And he's speaking of false teachers. And Peter says to the church, he says, But these, these false teachers, like natural brute beasts, made to be caught and destroyed, notice, they speak evil of the things they do not understand, and they will utterly perish in their own corruption, and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. Notice what he says. They are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery, and that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetousness practices and are accursed children. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following, notice, the way of Balaam. Here we see it. They follow the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he was rebuked for his iniquity, and the dumb donkey, speaking with a man's voice, restrained the madness of the prophet. And so, if, if God had not intervened by His grace, Balaam would have sold out to Balaam, 
or to Balak, I'm sorry, and the children of Israel might have been in, in more trouble, but God intervened. And see, it is possible to have a divided heart. Do you understand that word? In James chapter 1, verse 8, verse 8 it says uh, that it's possible to be a double-minded man. And a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. A double, a, <laughs> Try saying that three times really quick. A double-minded man is someone who is literally, in the Greek it's dipsychos, uh, or, or dicycles is the word. My my um, my mother-in-law would be able to read this word very much better. But the word means two-spirited. It means somebody who is vacillating, somebody who is double-minded. They're wavering. They're like a wave. Uh, they're like uh, uh, like a person out on the on the wind of the waves, and the waves and the wind are just tossing them around. That's kind of what it is. And it's somebody who is two-spirited. They, they, they got one foot in the world and they got one foot in the church. Uh, you know, they've never made that commitment to be fully the Lord's and they've never, uh, and, and, and they're not completely in the world. They got one foot in the world, one foot in the church. That is what a double minded man is. And someone like that is unstable in all of his or her ways. But notice, what is this doctrine of Balaam? It's a doctrine that promotes compromise while still holding to some semblance of godliness. And, and uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, it says this, that someone like this has a form of godliness, but they deny its power. And Paul's encouragement was to what? From such people turn away. From somebody who's got one foot in the world and one foot in the church, uh, you, turn, I mean, you, you minister to them and try to draw them closer to the Lord. But if they will not, then turn away from them. Turn away from them. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 25. We're going to look at this, this incident in the life of Israel. Numbers chapter 25. This is what Balaam had done. As the children of Israel were coming out of, of Egypt, remember they spent 40 years in the desert and they wandered around in the desert. And there came a point when they came to the eastern side of the uh, Jordan River, that they were camped out there for some time. And during that time, uh, Balaam, uh, who was a, a prophet, uh, was hired by Balak, who was the king of Moab. And Moab was an area in the country right near where the Israelites were camped out before they crossed over the Promised Land or crossed over the Jordan into the Promised Land. So Balak, the king of Moab, was nervous about this mass, um, um, this many people coming. And so he wanted uh, Balaam to curse the people. And so notice what happens. So now Israel, we're in Numbers 25, verse 1. It says, Now Israel remained in Acacia Grove. That's the area right to the east of the Jordan River, very near Moab. So Israel remained in Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifice of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So the men were marrying these ladies, having uh, relations with them, and then worshiping their gods as a result. So Israel was joined to Baal. Baal was a, uh, a, a false god, a false deity at that time in the, in the land of Canaan. And so they joined themselves to Baal-Pur 
Baal Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. Then the Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and hang the offenders before the Lord out in the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And so Moses said to the judges of Israel, Every one of you kill his men who were joined to Baal of Peor. And indeed, one of the children of Israel came presented to his brethren, a Midianite woman, in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the congregation of the children of Israel, who were weeping at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And now when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose from among the the congregation, and he took a javelin in his hand, and he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through. Because the the, the Midianites and the Amorites and the Moabites, these were uh, some of those uh, nations God had pronounced judgment against, and they were not to intermarry with them because they, they they were totally corrupt. That's one of the reasons why God was bringing them into the land to dispossess a people, seven nations actually, in, 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 in Canaan there, because of their idolatry. They had been doing it for hundreds of years. They, they, never, they did not repent, and so God was going to use Israel as his hammer of judgment, really, against these people. So they were not to marry with them. And you see here that they were not only doing it with the women of Moab, but also the women of the Midianites. And so the Lord spoke to Moses. Uh, let me back up here. Now when Phinehas, uh, we, we saw that he went through the tent and he thrust them both through. And so the plague was stopped among the children of Israel. And those who died in the plague were 24,000. And then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the children of Israel because he was zealous with my zeal among them so that I did not consume the children of Israel in my zeal. Therefore, Say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and his descendants after him. And, uh, you know, so let's just stop right there. But you see what had happened here, uh, that they began to commit fornication. And who taught them, who taught, who taught Balak this scheme? Because uh, Balak wanted the, the Israelites to fall under a curse, and Balaam would not curse the children of Israel because God had his thumb, if you will, on Balaam, that he would not do that. But Balaam turned around and says, Listen, if you really want to get to the children of Israel, let God bring judgment upon them. You don't have to do anything. Just bring some of the really cute and uh, beautiful-looking Moabite girls and the Midianites. Bring them into the camp and have them flirt with the, with the young men and nature will take care of itself, and God will then have to judge them. And that's exactly what happened. But God held Balaam and Balak responsible for this wicked plan. And the thing we have to remember is that um, we don't have time to go into the other places, but um, in Numbers chapter 31, we find at the end of Moses' life, he leads a battle against the Midianites, who were uh, was one of these women, but this people group, um, and one of the people who was killed in that battle was Balaam himself. And, and so, just like the enticements of the Moabite women, the, the pagan temples in Pergamos, what they would do is the, they would have temple prostitutes coming down from these temples at night and seducing the men. And it was a very uh, common thing. It was very customary for them to do this. And think about being a church in the midst of all of this. 
And that's exactly what had happened. And, and just like today, there are, there are men who are strong in the faith, and there are some who um, aren't strong in the faith, and because they haven't really uh, yielded that uh, those those things over in their life, they haven't really uh, turned away from them. They, they they were easily ensnared by these women, these temple prostitutes, and so this began happening even in the church in Pergamos. That's why these temples. Uh, that's why I bring that up because they would come from those temples. That's how they worship. Can you imagine? You know, and people in that city would be glad to offer up their teenage daughters that they could aspire to being a temple prostitute. And that's really what it was. They would, they would go and they would come into the city at night and lure young men. And so the many ministers of the gospel have, you know, in, in, our, ta- in our day have been uh, taken out as a result of these things. These kinds of things are happening even in the church. We know that the devil, he's working very hard to take down leaders. We see it in the newspapers, unfortunately. Again, we need to pray for each other. Uh, Christians, we need to pray for each other because this kind of deception, uh, even though it started back then and even before actually, is still going on today. The, the devil doesn't have to use any, any new tools in his tool chest. The old tools work just fine and because most people are susceptible to those things if we're not careful. So that's why we pray for our leaders. Pray for your pastor. Pray for other pastors. Pray for yourselves. We all need to be careful in the time that we live in today because we live in, um, you know, you think about Pergamos and the environment they lived in. We in America, the church, live in a similar environment. It may not be as outright, but it's very subtle, but it's very uh, it is very obvious the things that are going on, the whole, um, all of the things that are going on, you know, the homosexual um, agenda and all of these things are totally corrupting many churches. In fact, there are churches even in the area here that have pastors, men that are homosexual and are married to another man. Uh, they have them right here in our, and there's, you know, they're here. I know this for a fact. And so this is, this is horrible. And, um, but these are the things that we have to be concerned about. You see, the Bible hasn't changed one bit concerning any of this. We know that it to you know in Exodus 20 verse 14 it says you shall not commit adultery. In 1 Corinthians 6 it says flee immorality, and we see immorality all around us. And then in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse, verse 3, what does Paul say? This is the will of God, your sanctification, and sanctification is being set apart set apart from the world and set apart unto God. It has to be that way. And there has to be a setting apart from the world and then being set apart to God. It's so important that we are that way. And even in Hebrews 13, verse 14, it says, Let the marriage bed be undefiled. There's nothing wrong with uh, sexuality and the bonds of marriage. It's all good. God made it that way. And He said it was very good. And uh, And it was uncorrupted. But today we see the corruption all around us. And in Ephesians 5, verse 3, finally it says, Do not let immorality or any impurity even be named among you. And see, that's the the high road, really, isn't it, for the church today, is to not let any immorality or impurity be named among us. So examine yourself. You know, what about you? Are you living a double life? You know, as I, as I say this, I'm saying it into a camera, and I know that there are people in our own fellowship and others that I, that I haven't even met. You're, you're watching, but are you living a double life? These are, these are important things to ask. And, and 
you know, and, and that may hurt, you know, because it, it's not an easy thing to, to come to terms with, but we have to come to terms with it. Are you living a double life? Are you unfaithful to your spouse? Men, when you go on business trips, are you renting videos that, and looking at things that you ought not to? Are you looking at pornographic magazines or videos online? Ladies, are you watching the soap operas and falling in love with these, these, these long-haired men who, you know, clean the pool, you know, and, <laughs> and all these things, you know, uh, single folks, are you keeping yourself pure and guarding your virginity? Yes, it's important to do that. Wait until you're married. The greatest blessings are when you go to that altar with your spouse for the first time. And God, I've seen this happen in our fellowship and just the, the beauty of two people who have never been with anyone and finally they're there at the altar and it is the most beautiful thing that you've ever seen. It'll actually bring tears to your eyes and I've witnessed it a couple of times where I knew that was the case and it was an amazing thing. It's a mind blower. So rare in this country, so rare in this world for that to happen and that's why these things that we're reading today are important. It is important, but what about the doctrine of the Nicolaitans? Basically, it's very similar to that of the doctrine of Balaam. The church at Ephesus, in verse 6 of this very chapter, they were commended by Jesus too because they hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And the Nicolaitans was, we believe, a doctrine started by a man named Nicholas. His name literally means conqueror of the people. And we know in Acts chapter 6, verse 5, that he was actually one of the first deacons of the church. But evidently, at some point, he kind of broke off and did his own thing. And, be, and because of his influence and his uh, lack of uh, devotion to Christ, he began to uh, lead people into perversion and liberty. In fact, they held to a doctrine the Nicolaitans, they held to something called antinomianism, and that's a really fancy word. And basically what it means is it's a belief that none of God's moral laws are binding on any Christian today. In other words, because I'm a Christian, because the blood of Christ has covered me, now I'm free from the law and I can just do whatever I want. Is that what the Bible teaches? Absolutely not. In fact, the law is there to, to, to show us where we've gone wrong, right? And thank God that Jesus fulfilled the law, but that doesn't mean that we can just continue doing what we want. But that was the sin of the Nicolaitans. They believed in this antinomianism, and that was, again, was the belief that none of God's moral laws are binding on the church today, which is a fallacy. That is not true. In fact, one... Um, one gentleman, uh, Clement of Alexander, actually said this. He says, These people, they've abandoned themselves to pleasure like goats, leading a life of self-indulgence. Those, those were his words. And so, just as the church in Pergamos, they lived in a, in a culture of compromise, we too live in a world of compromise. And how is the church in America, how are we to stand up against these things? How are we to stand up? First, we need to be born again. Right? Jesus said, you must be born again. He said that to a very religious man. Read John chapter 3 for yourself. You must be born again, Nicodemus. You cannot see God. Unless you're born again, you cannot see God, and you can't even enter the kingdom of God. And, and, and those were Jesus' words. We need the Spirit of God in us. It's not good enough. I'm not good enough of my own, of my own self to, to make it to heaven. I have to be born again. I was born with a sin nature. I need a new nature. 
I need a new nature, the very nature of Jesus. And that's why he said to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you're a very religious man. You're a Pharisee. Which, and, and, and at that time, he was the ruling class, part of the ruling class of Israel. He says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. So we need to be born again. We need to stay in the Word of God. Open your Bibles, folks. Read your Bibles. More than you watch the news, more than you read novels. And there's nothing wrong with any of those things, but the proportion of time that we spend in those things is going to have an impact on us spiritually. If I spend most of my time reading the scanning the headlines of even Fox News, huh, I'm going to be in trouble. If I spend all my time looking at CNN, I'm going to be even more trouble. But the thing is, is what am I filling my heart and my mind with? Wouldn't it be better to rather study the Word of God and, and get a commentary or just pray and read and, and, and be encouraged and built up and know what's coming and, and the real, who the enemy really is? Wouldn't that be much better? I think it is. So we need to stay in the Word, we need to study the Word of God, and we need to be in prayer. That's why I'd encourage you to join us on Tuesday evenings in our prayer meetings that we have at 7 o'clock here. We're doing it online just like we're doing this now, but please consider joining us and just praying with us. You know, that we need to be a praying church. Without prayer, uh, we might as well just close the doors and, and, and do something else with our lives. Because if we're not willing to pray, if we're not praying, how can God do anything? You know, God can do anything, but rarely will He do anything unless His people pray. So we need to pray, and we need to obey the Lord. We need to turn away from things. We need to come out from among the world and be separate. We can, the, the, we're supposed to be, we are in the world, but we are not to be of the world. What does it say in 2 Corinthians? And then we'll finish up here and we'll take com, uh, communion. Um, uh, let's see, what time is it? Oh my. <laughs> 2 Corinthians. Um, Paul said to the Corinthians, he said to them in verse 17, Come out from among them. Meaning, come out from among that Corinthian culture that was so twisted, very much like uh, Pergamos, a very lascivious, a very um, uh, compromised culture. He says, Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. And, and, and that's important for us to do. We are to be in the world, but not to be of the world. So what is the remedy? Verse 16 is the remedy. Repent. This is a word that nobody likes to hear. And in fact, you know, sometimes as soon as you mention the word repent, people are immediately repulsed because they think you're going to bring out a Bible and smack them with it or something. But you know what? There's no greater thing than repentance. It, it, all it means is turning away the opposite direction from the direction I'm going. So if I'm going towards something that I know is, is not good for my life, I need to turn the other direction. I need to turn. And will you turn? Will you repent of your sins? I've got my own and I repent. You know, I'm repenting and I'm turning away from those things. And as we go along in our Christian walk, we should be, we're not sinless, but as we go along in our relationship with God, hopefully we will sin less than we did when we were younger. And so it's something that we need to do. We need to repent. Notice what he says, Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Remember, the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, able to divide between the bone and marrow and soul and spirit. Boy, that, that is really something. That's a very clinical, surgical, spiritual tool that God has, and He does it with His Word. And that's amazing how He can just do that. And, and we've all been the beneficiaries of that, haven't we? We've all experienced uh, what the Word of God does to us. And then finally He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. Remember, 
the children of Israel ate manna. It was uh, some kind of uh, food that God caused to come out of the ground when the children of Israel were in the desert for 40 years. But notice he says, to him who overcomes, and we overcome by our faith in Christ, don't we? He says, to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no man knows except him who receives it. We know that the hidden manna, it's like bread. You know, Jesus said, I am the bread of life, and he who comes to me will never hunger, never thirst. So Jesus is our hidden manna. And the white stone, in the, in the ancient days, uh, a judge would, uh, before he would pass sentence on someone, he would put into a jar a white stone or a black stone, and um, he would offer that to, uh, uh, to give his verdict. And a white stone would mean that you're acquitted, a black stone would mean that you were condemned and then sentenced to jail or whatever was the uh, the result of your whatever you did. And it was also uh, a means of acceptance. Uh, many people who were invited to certain events they would they would be given a, a special stone, uh, and that would mean that they were welcome and accepted. And, and and notice he says, and I'll give you a new name. You know, this speaks of a new identity. A new, um, uh, a new identity and a new experience. You know, Jesus, during the life of Peter, when he first met Peter, what, what did he say to Peter in John chapter 1? He says, Jesus looking at Peter, he says, You are Simon Peter, the son of Jonah, but you shall be called Cephas, which means a stone. And so Jesus, knowing and looking into the life, looking into Peter and seeing something in Peter that Peter didn't even see in himself. And that's the way God looks at us. And so one day, Christian, you're going to receive a white stone. When we're in glory, we're going to receive a white stone. And we're going to receive on that white stone a name that only you and the Lord knows. It's going to be something personal. It's going to be something unique. And no one else is going to understand it, but it's God's hidden secret to you. It's His hidden manna. It's that fellowship. That's what it means. You know, and then, um, you know, when you think of a new name and you think of a white stone and this hidden manna or intimate fellowship, what does it remind you of? It reminds me of a wedding, of a marriage. The bride receives a white stone on her hand. She receives a new name. <laughs> and... And, and, and the intimacy and the fellowship that's going to occur between now the husband and the wife. And, and I love that. I love that. Let me read to you, um, actually in Ephesians 5, and we'll, we'll, we'll stop here and we'll take communion after this. But look at Ephesians chapter 5. These things, these last few verses remind me of a marriage. And let's look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. And, you know, Jesus gives uh, some exhortation to wives and to husbands. And in verse 22, he says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. And he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. And here's the thing for the husbands. And I think we've got a hard thing to do too, guys. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for. That means self-sacrifice on our end, to bless our wives, to love them. That he might, notice, sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. That he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, 
but that she should be holy and without blemish. Notice verse 28. So husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes it and he cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they too shall become one flesh. But notice verse 32, and we'll end here. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. <laughs> Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects or reverences her husband. And I love that. So as we look at this you know, new name, a, a, a new stone, and, and as we look at this intimacy of, of the hidden manna, it reminds us of a marriage, and, and, and that's just what Jesus is going to do when He returns for His bride, the church. He's going to, we're going to be married to Him. We're going to be married to Him. Are you looking forward to that day? I know that I am. I know that I am. Let's take communion now. If you have your elements nearby, um, we will take communion together. And remember the night before Jesus was taken, remember in the upper room there in Jerusalem, Jesus, after they had taken the Passover meal, He did something very unique that's never been done. And that is, He passed around a, piece, a loaf of bread and each of the disciples pulled off a piece of the bread and He said, Take, eat. He goes, This is My body which is broken for you. Now His body hadn't been broken yet, but in just hours from that very moment, His body would be broken. Uh, his, his, the skin would be broken. As He, as he was beaten, as he was taken to the cross and nailed to that cross. And certainly we know the events of what happened on the cross. Jesus' uh, the crown of thorns, the, the floggings uh, with the flagellum that he received. Certainly the, the spear in the side, uh, the nails in the wrist, fastening him into the feet, to the pole. And Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. My, my body, this is my body, take it and eat it. And then he took the cup and he passed it around. He said, this is, the blood of my, uh, this is the blood of the new covenant. And he said, take and drink it. And, and, and we know that these two elements are the things that Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. We do this to remind ourselves of what he did on the cross. I mean, how could we forget? But we do, don't we? Because it, we forget when we don't adhere to it. You know, we can get so busy in life. And so that's what these elements are for, to remind us of those things. And so that's why this is important for us to take. And Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. This is symbolic. This is symbolic. And so we take this in remembrance of what he did for us, the greatest act of sacrifice, the greatest act of worship that has ever happened on the history of the world and ever could be was Jesus laying his life down willingly. He was no martyr. He willingly laid down his life for you and I because he paid the punishment and what we couldn't see, remember, we just had Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And I, I stress that at this time. But one of the things that was not seen on the cross that was significant, certainly the beatings and all of that. But listen, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people through history have been crucified. But no one has taken upon him the sin of the world like Jesus did. And that is something I believe is probably the most horrible of the, of the two. I mean, I've never been crucified, and I hope I never am. 
But notice that it was the crucifixion, but it was what happened afterwards when God put the sin of the entire humankind upon His Son and judged it in His Son. And why did He do that? So that we might have life. That's what the whole, that's what the whole sacrificial system in the Old Testament was for. When they would sin, they would offer a lamb in their place. They would offer a goat in their place. They would offer a pigeon or whatever in their place. They did this as substitutionary. Jesus, who is Almighty God in the flesh, He took that sin of the world upon Himself. And if we believe in Him, the Bible says that we can go to, we, we, we'll know that we'll go to heaven and we'll know that we are His. Because if the Spirit of God does not dwell in us, we are none of His, the Bible says. So it's important that we remember. So let's do that. Let's take the bread and let's take the cup as we remember what Jesus did for us. Praise the Lord. Isn't it nice to know that, you know, the Bible says in 1 John chapter 1, verses 8-10, through 10, it says this wonderful thing. And, and don't forget this. This is a, a huge scripture. In 1 John chapter 1, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it verbatim. 1 John chapter 1, I believe it's in uh, verses 8 through 10. Notice what John says, and we'll finish with this. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But notice the promise here. If we, Christians, if we confess our sins, He, Jesus, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is the best thing happening, folks, because what we just did uh, just now is we, we confess that that, that that blood and His blood on the cross was sufficient to cover us so that our sins could be forgiven. And, and certainly it's important that we do confess daily, right? And so uh, before we even take communion, and probably should have done it earlier, but you know it's good to go and confess anything that you know of. And God will cover everything if you forget. You don't have to worry, but when we do know of something, it's important that we do confess it, because if we don't, then the Bible says, if we don't confess it, then we're not forgiven. Now, that's a tough pill. And I'll just leave His Word at it, because it's important for us to confess and to uh, come into agreement with Him. But aren't you glad that you're cleansed? and that you're, um, you're covered by the blood of Christ. Father, we thank you for this time today, and thank you for your great love for us, Lord. Thank you, never, thank you that you've never given up on us, Lord. And as we read these, these, these difficult things that we read in Revelation concerning the, the churches at that time, and Lord, honestly, we see a lot of the same things in and of ourselves, and so we, we recognize that this letter is good for us to read. And the others, too, as we, as we see the, the commendations and certainly as we see the things that are lacking, Lord, we, we recognize that that's true within us as well. So, Lord, help us to examine ourselves and, and not to be overwrought with, uh, with condemnation, Lord, at all, but rather just to come to you and confess. And, Lord, even be free from the guilt of past stuff. Lord, we know that the, the forgiveness of sins, it does that, too, Lord. It frees us for, even from the guilt. And so we thank you for that, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.